Statements are scheduled tomorrow in the New York criminal prosecution of Harvey Weinstein. A ruling today by the trial judge gives us insight into how the defense case will shape up. The judge overseeing Harvey Weinstein's trial will allow the defense to reference emails from Weinstein's accusers during opening statements. But the defense cannot read from those emails because they have not yet been entered into evidence. Weinstein defense attorney Damon Sharonis in court today said he would counter the accusations against Weinstein with the accuser's own words. Witnesses who claim sexual assault also bragged about being involved in sexual relations with him, Sharonis said. One accuser even wanted to introduce Weinstein to her mother, he told the judge. The judge's decision to allow these references came after the state attempted to stop the defense from using the emails during opening statements at all. The defense accused the state of trying to hide the truth. The text of many of the emails have been made public already through court motions. The defense made it clear to the judge their theory is that the sex was consensual. Despite accusations from more than 80 women, the New York criminal charges involve five counts from two primary accusers. Two others, however, will testify to so-called other bad acts, similar to the charges in a prosecution attempt to convince the jury that the charges are true. Predatory sexual assault and criminal sexual assault are the first charges related to the first accuser. Another count of predatory sexual assault and two rape charges of different degrees relate to an accuser who was allegedly unable to consent. The top counts, numbers one and three, could carry of life sentence. Four attorneys are with us tonight. Let's begin with Dina Dahl in California and Joseph Marone in Philadelphia. So Dina, it looks like the defense is going all out with the tactic of blaming the accusers and trying to say this was consensual and then they change their story. Is that a wise tactic? Is it the only tactic? I think it's their only tactic. It's their only way to show that there was not actual consent. But it seems like the uh, prosecution is going to be using an expert, a sexual expert that was used in the Bill Cosby trial, to show that victims often act in a complicated manner afterwards. I think that could be an effective, convince them that, oh, that there was no consent to the jury. Yeah, Joseph, I mean, even if the defense takes this tactic, it seems to me, as Dina pointed out, that the state can get some experts and present some evidence and say, hey, look, I was still trying to live my life and I tried to smooth over something negative that happened. Is it possible we could have the accusers say that on the witness stand and basically trash this whole defense tactic? Well, listen, they're going to they're gonna roll out the expert. The expert's going to be first. If the, the expert's going to explain to the, to the jurors how someone who sexually assaulted acts post uh, assault that they usually don't come forward right away. That sometimes that you know they're hesitant. All these factors they're going to hear so-called victims. But I think that the evidence shows in these emails that you know they were they were okay with it. They continued the relationship. They sought out advice. They they were bragging about it. And remember, these women are are actresses that are inspiring in a world that's different from the normal person. So it's going to go a long way for the defense, these emails, these post emails. So I don't know if they're going to be able to really, really prosecution sell this fact that uh, what the expert says matches up and therefore you got to convict. Let's turn now to our experts in studio, Catherine Smith, Linda Kenny Bodden, along with me here in New York. So, Linda, uh, when you when you boil this all down to low gravy, what do you have here? Well, I don't know about low gravy, but what you have here 
is a case where indeed it's the sexual predator type charges that really will make a difference one way or another. Will the jury take those for the other two women and say therefore the first two assaults have to happen? If I'm the defense I would want a jury charge right off the bat that you can't even consider whether those assaults happen unless you find him guilty of the first assault. And Catherine in New York practice here what do you make of this decision from the judge to basically say well you can reference the emails you just can't read from them during the openings. That's pretty common in New York correct? Right I think it makes total sense because that's not yet admitted into evidence. Usually you can't really read the contents verbatim of an exhibit until it's entered into evidence, so that's pretty standard for an opening. And quickly, Linda, keep in mind, we still have an outstanding motion before the appellate division in New York to potentially change the venue. Is it in any way likely that the appellate division could swoop in tomorrow morning and say, shut this whole thing down, we need to move it because of the publicity? No, because you found the jury and you all agreed that you have a jury and therefore they're going to deny it right now. So we're going to keep an eye out for that motion if, in fact, it comes our way, but we haven't seen anything yet. Lawyers for famous attorney Michael Avenatti are bringing a few interesting facts to light as his case prepares to go to trial. The Avenatti defense reveals that Avenatti himself is currently in the same jail which once housed Jeffrey Epstein and that he's being held in the jail cell which recently housed now convicted Mexican drug kingpin El Chapo. The defense says it needs Avenatti moved off of a block which, quote, houses individuals charged with terrorism offenses so that he may better prepare for trial. Avenatti faces a number of upcoming proceedings. The first is his upcoming trial on charges he attempted to extort $25 million from Nike. A tumultuous sentencing hearing has ended with a formal death sentence for the man convicted of killing a family of four and burying them in the California desert. A jury recommended a life sentence last year for Chase Merritt in the killing of his business partner, Joseph McStay, but recommended a death sentence for the killings of McStay's wife and sons. A hearing started with a lengthy argument from the defense about why Merritt was innocent and a motion for a new trial. That in a moment, but first, this victim impact statement from Patrick McStay, the father of victim Joseph McStay. Joey, Summer, Gianni, and Joey Jr. did nothing to you. That they welcomed you into their lives and home. My son Joey did nothing but help you. And how did you repay him? By brutally killing him, his wife Summer, and his defenseless infant sons, four-year-old Gianni and two-year-old Joey Jr. So because of your actions and no one else's actions, you destroyed the lives of many of their family members and friends. I believe this to be because of your own narcissism and psychotic actions. I hope you burn in hell. But I will pay, pray for your family and your children as they are to me all just more innocent victims. He murdered my family and caused such pain and suffering that will last forever. Before that statement, the defense argued that the state's insistence that cell tower information linked to the defendant that linked the defendant rather to the gravesite where the four victims were found was actually based on bad evidence. The court remembers there were cell tower records that the FBI had access to that we didn't get. And the court did uh, give us one day, uh, November, or sorry, uh, uh, February 6th, the court gave us that day of the cell tower records that the FBI had access to. The 1152 call, when it was made, uh, the most likely interpretation of where Mr. Merritt's location would have been when that call was made was actually on the west side of the tower, um, which is where he said he was, 
uh, all along. If, if the court recalls, even though the district attorney's office uh, continued to argue that uh, Mr. Merritt said, I wasn't there, I, wasn't, I was never in the desert, they, they said that over and over again. But what, as the court recalls, allowed us to play at least that portion of the interview where Mr. Merritt repeatedly said, if I were in the desert, I would have been at my sister's or my brother's, if I was there. I don't remember being, I wasn't at the gravesite, but if I was in the desert, I was at my sister's or my brother's. The defense came back with a PowerPoint and presented this evidence to the judge. This road right here is the road that his sister li lives on, a National Trails Highway. Her house is literally, I would say, in the direct line of that azimuth, at least in the range of there. And if you recall, Chase had maintained all along that he was in, if he was going to be in the desert, he would have been at his sister's or his brother's. Marlene, yes. a lot of this was covered by Mr. McGee in his cross-examination. A lot of it was covered in his closing argument. There was an extensive discussion of the beginning and ending of the calls and the reasons for that. Not, not the direction, Your Honor. That's, that's, the, that's really the key. There was. The ending uh, tower, which is here, which he hits on 330 uh, degree azimuth, that, again, is, is going northwest. Okay, and that was, that was not testified to in trial. And that's significant because, again, it points directly at his sister's house. In a lengthy opinion denying the defense motion for a new trial, the judge downplayed the significance of the cell tower data to the state's case. The effect of all of that testimony was never to say it proves the defendant was right at the gravesite but only to show that on February the 6th, a day and a half after the family disappeared from Fallbrook, the defendant was in the general area where the bodies were buried. Mr. Merritt was in that general location. And he denied being in the upper desert. The investigators, when they interviewed him, asked him if he'd been up in the upper desert at that time. He said no. Then they said, well, if you had been in the upper desert, where might you have gone? And he said, well, if I were in the upper desert, I either would have been at my sister's or at my brother's. Uh, but he was clear all the way through that no, he wasn't there. Merritt's sister spoke to police in 2014 about the McStay disappearance in very early 2010. Here's how the judge suggested Merritt wasn't telling the truth. Obviously in 2014, she's not going to specifically remember the date of uh, February 6, 2010, uh, four years, more than four years earlier. But generally asked, well, did he come up and visit you there? Her answer was no, that he hadn't been there for more than five years. That any time she wanted to see him, she would have to come down to Rancho to see him. That he did not visit her. So we have his cell phone there, him denying he was there, and no explanation as to why his cell phone, and inferentially him, would be in that general area. 
Let's turn once again to our panel in studio here. Linda Kenny Biden, this case to me has been hallmarked by the state presenting evidence and then backtracking from it when it gets challenged in court. And what we saw here is, you know, the prosecutor saying, well, we never said that the cell phone evidence says he was standing next to the graves. Well, wait a minute. You said the tire tracks at the graves were his and you say that was the date that it happened. So what's the cell phone evidence all about then? Yeah. And we talked about it during the trial. You know, as I said earlier today, I believe, obviously, given the fact that the defendant was the last one to admit it to see Joseph McStay, that was an issue for him. However, the forensic evidence here was really a problem for me in that the state uh, talking about blood spatter here and table stains and then the, the cell phone tower stuff and backtracking. And that really, I think if you're going to convict somebody, it should be on evidence. You stay with all the way through or admit you were wrong. Yeah, exactly. And, and after this wrapped up today, we heard the state backtrack and say, well, we're not saying uh, we know where the murders happened. Well, why did you present all the blood evidence in the house? Catherine, there's all this hair splitting going on about this and the other evidence. You know, how do you present all that at court and then backtrack from it? Well, that's what's really problematic. I mean, you, you open really hard with all this evidence and, and then you're, you're trying to backpedal the whole time. I think that there's been problems from the beginning with this evidence, from all the DNA evidence, from the lack of evidence within the murder scene. Now we have the phone evidence problems. I think that there's going to be a heck of an appeal. You know, Joseph, uh, I think this is going to head that way, too, with a heck of an appeal, uh, turning to our panel watching from afar here tonight. Uh, but you get into these arguments about what truly is new evidence. If it's a new interpretation based on evidence that was turned over at the time of trial, a lot of times appeals courts are hesitant to step in that. Yeah, but I think if you take the, the evidence as a whole, the way it was presented, there are lots of problems, and it kind of paves the way for the defense on the, on the appellate side to really kind of list a number and number of issues, along with an ineffective assistance of counsel issue, which really I think at this point in time is going to be really relevant. And uh, I think he stands a good chance for this case to be remanded. Dina, I've got to ask about this very quickly here, too. You know, we, we saw the judge split hair saying, well, you know, the sister says he hasn't been here in uh, five years. Well, she was speaking to police four and a half years after the killings. I mean, is this one of those things where, well, it's been about five years? Well, darn it, it better be exactly five years to the day or Chase Merritt's a liar. Is that really a, a good way to interpret that? Maybe not, but I think the judge's point was that that jury heard enough evidence to be able to make a decision, and then they did. And he didn't think that this new evidence about direction of the cell phone was enough to overturn the verdict. However much we all think that the evidence wasn't very strong, the 12 jurors got a chance to decide that for themselves, and I think that's what the judge is saying here. Yeah, basically. So onto the appeals court it goes. And still ahead here on the debrief, a Florida man on trial in the killings of his mother and his brothers. The state's case takes a dramatic turn away from what we all expected during opening statements. That is when we come back. Opening statements today in the Florida case of a man accused of killing his mother and brothers. Pensacola prosecutors are seeking the death penalty against Donald Hartung. At one point, authorities planned to suggest the killings were ritualistic and somehow related to the Wicca religion, a rare blue moon, or perhaps Native American rituals. However, the state said absolutely nothing about that during openings. Instead, this case appears to be headed towards a financial motive. Here's the state. On Tuesday, July 28th of 2015, this defendant went to the Smith home and cooked dinner. And that Tuesday, July 28th of 2015, is the last day the Smith family is known to be alive, and this defendant was the last person known to be with them. And the evidence is going to show, ladies and gentlemen, that after they ate, John went into the den area, which is where he normally sat and watched TV, 
And while he was sitting on a love seat in the den, this defendant went into the den and beat John in the head with a hammer and slashed his throat. As this defendant's mother, Bonnie, sat in her recliner in the living room uh, where she normally sat and watched TV and ordered QVC, this defendant beat his mother in the, head, in the head with a hammer. He slit her throat, and the medical examiner, <clears throat> excuse me, will tell you that Bonnie was hit in the head approximately eight times. That's how prosecutors say the first two victims died. Then they say this defendant cleaned up from that dinner he cooked, cleaned up after the first two killings, hid the bodies under blankets, and waited for his other brother. When Richard got home that day, he went into the den, and while he was in the den, this defendant shot Richard in the right ear. Now, it did not end up being a very good shot. You will hear from the medical examiner that it did not do any major damage to Richard, but it was obviously strong enough and startling enough to stun somebody. Ultimately, this defendant slit Richard's throat just as he had done to John and his mother. Richard's body came to rest on the floor in the den area, right in front of where John was seated on the love seat in the den. And then this defendant placed blankets and clothing and items on top of Richard's body, just as he had done to John and his mother. You will hear from a neighbor next door to the Smith family, and he is going to tell you that he saw this defendant leave the Smith house that day around twilight. The defense says the state's motive for this case is bogus. They say the only reason Donald Hartung is a suspect is because he's the only person detectives investigated for the murders. The will says that Donald Hartung Jr. is excluded. My client is Donald Hartung Sr. Is that an error in drafting the will or was it meant to exclude Mr. Hartung's son, Donald Hartung Jr.? There is no evidence that my client ever read that will saw that will or in any way had knowledge of the contents of the will. There is not going to be, at the conclusion of this case, anyone who is going to stand up and say, I did it, I'm the person that committed the murders. I suggest to you, at the conclusion of the case, there is no answer to who the murderer is. There is no indication of any physical evidence that he committed any of the murders. There was no blood found at his house. There was no blood found in his car. There was nothing to link him in any way to these murders besides his DNA at his mom's house where he went at least every Tuesday to cook dinner for them, for her and his two half-brothers. Investigators jimmied their way into the house to find the three victims' bodies. On cross-examination, one of the agents who went into the house described when they told Hartung, the defendant, his family members were dead. Obviously, we all walked out to uh, Mr. Hartung. Uh, it was probably me and Deputy Singleton that first approached him. And the report said that he was upset and you put him in a patrol car? That's correct. He wasn't crying or necessarily emotional, but people respond to things differently. Um, obviously, being told that three of your family members were dead, I didn't know if he was maybe just kind of in shock or something. He wasn't responding that well, um, so I just had him sit down in the car. That was different than he was when you came up to his house because he responded to you when you came to his house. I mean, he was responsive and he would answer questions and stuff. Um, I, I would say it was kind of similar. He was very calm, um, but I just didn't know, you know, people respond to emotional things differently. 
Did he ever tell you that he didn't want you to search his uh, family's home? No, he did not. In fact, he absolutely gave you permission. Is that correct? Yes, sir. I, I basically said, would you write a written statement? And he, he complied. And he could, have, he could have said, no, I don't want to do that, right? He, he could have. And he didn't. That's correct. He did not. Let's jump right in here. Dina Dahl, Joseph Marone. Joseph, this is a heck of a retreat from the original law enforcement theory of Wicca, Blue Moon, Native rituals to basically just say, oh, it's an issue of the will. Yeah, that's right. I mean, now they're kind of putting their, their wagon, hitching their wagon to this financial issue. But really, now there's a question of whether or not he was even out of the will. He may have been in the will, may have been a mistake, and it was going to his son. So that, that theory is about to fall apart. I know there was a problem with the overall investigation, one of the investigation, investigators obviously having a a serious problem uh, as far as credibility. So this case, and there's no direct evidence linking uh, anything to this defendant. I mean, th this case is falling apart. I, I really don't think uh, there's a shot here to convict this guy. Well, that's your thought, Dina. We've got this uh, eyewitness, this neighbor, saying that the defendant was leaving the house the day they think that the uh, three were killed. Right. And, you know, the fact that this was such a vicious crime, a lot of it was done with the hammer, up close and personal, eight times the mother was hit. You might think that this is somebody that knew the victims. And it sounds like the police didn't find any other evidence of another suspect. So although the evidence here seems slight, the viciousness of it may make it seem like it could be personal. Yeah, I agree. Oftentimes, that's what happens in these cases. Dina, Joseph, great to talk to you both here tonight on The Debrief. Let's turn to our in-house panel in studio now. Linda Kenny Bodden, we had a police officer get up on the stand and just say people react to things differently. And oftentimes, it's the defense that has to bring right. that up and argue it. Right, and, and he just admitted it because I don't like that reaction testimony because people do react differently. You know, we've all had family members that, that have died, right? Do you bawl your eyes out? Sometimes yes, sometimes you're stoic for other reasons. So... It, it, defense is doing a great job very easily to cross-examine these witnesses. Yeah, I mean, Catherine, I, I think this is going to be interesting to watch this play out because the police basically said so much leading up to this case about, you know, all these elements and, and now we're left with a will. Well, that's the thing. I, the, the Wicca stuff I thought was so bizarre from, from the jump. So I'm glad that they eliminated that. I thought that was a really bizarre motive. But now we're coming with this faulty will. I mean, I think that we can't really rely on that too much. We'll see what happens. Yeah, exactly. And of course, the jurors heard all about this uh, Wicca, Blue Moon, Native ritual information in the jury questionnaires. I guess we won't hear it at trial now. That's it for the debrief tonight. We'll be live at the Weinstein opening statements tomorrow.